you've listened to a long and complex case, murder in the first degree. A premeditated murder is the most serious charge tried in our criminal courts. You've listened to the testimony. You've had the law read to you and interpreted as it applies in this case. It's now your duty to sit down and try and separate the facts from the fancy. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen? It's a show where we talk about movies, and specifically, we talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. This is episode number 224, and our movie this week is 1957's 12 Angry Men. And here to talk with me about it, because I had not seen it before, but he certainly has, it's Kurt. Kurt, how you doing? Hey, thank you for having me. Uh, I, I am so pumped. Um, I'm just going to throw it out there. This is my favorite movie of all time. So you had uh, okay, yeah, yeah. You had mentioned that before, and that was why uh, I got a hold of you. I'm like, all right, let's do Twelve Angry Men. I'm ready. Yep. And uh, and you had said it was your favorite movie before. So when did you first see this movie? It has to have been thirty years ago, okay. and and I think, um, I think I saw it on amc when amc actually was american movie classics um (laughs) on cable uh and uh and i was always a big henry fonda fan and whoa i heard that whatever that was um oh that was that was uh, i i had a sound come across my computer so you didn't hear that so that was good that was just startling um so yeah i I was a big henry Henry fonda fan and i hadn't seen this movie and i just said okay well um i knew a little bit about it and then i watched it and i was enthralled like to the point where i went out and got a couple of cast photos and wrote to all the living cast to try to get their autographs like i i went in deep (laughs) i went in deep and i got about half of them and really? unfor- yeah, and un- unfortunately, um, they were lost in one of my cross country moves. But I oh, had no. Ed Begley Sr., Lee J. Cobb, uh, John Fiedler, uh, Henry Fonda had already passed at the time that mm-hmm. I was I was doing that. But yeah, I'm, I think I got Martin Balsam right before he passed. Um, wow. It, it, yeah, it was, uh, and and just watching this movie in prep for this again just strengthened my resolve in loving this movie so much i it just it, i can't wait to di- i can't wait to dig in <laughs> so i have zero excuse for having not seen this movie it wasn't something i talked to a few people this week when i mentioned that i was watching 12 angry men and they're like oh i remember we watched that in a civics class or we watched it in school somewhere i never had that opportunity and it just sort of never like came up it was never something uh i didn't avoid it i never sought it out i knew of 12 angry men it's sort Mm -hmm. of in the zeitgeist you you i I knew that there were different remakes of it i didn't realize how many different remakes which we'll kind of get there quite a few yeah yeah um but i you know i knew of the movie uh and i knew that a lot of people considered it one of the greater movies ever made um, but I just never sat down to watch it. And this gave me a perfect excuse to do that. And I'll tell you what, I slept on this movie for way too damn long because this is straight out fantastic. It's and so good. there's a lot, there's, 
there is so much going on in a movie that consists of literally 12 men in a single room for 95% of the runtime. It's, um, it, it's yeah. astounding to me. Um, like it's kind of when the I was, bottle episode that I compare all bottle episodes to. <laughs> yeah. That's a yeah, great way to put it's it. That kind of thing. It, it's, it's a thing where, you know, the whole thing takes place in the jury room and it's, it's the jury deliberating on a murder trial. And quite honestly, the whole trial and everything that's happened around it is insignificant. It really does not matter for this movie to exist. All everything going on with this movie is the interactions between these 12 men in this room. And like it kicks off. I'm already a sucker for like a long take. And the first thing in the, in the movie is that long take from inside the building. Like we get an establishing shot of the courthouse and then we're inside the courthouse and we get that nice long moving take down the hallway. And then it goes into the courtroom and I'm watching it. And I'm like, all right, all right. I'm already kind of feeling it. And then we get into the courtroom and I love the first scene because that, the the judge the only scene we get outside of basically the courtroom or the the jury room the judge sounds like bored at this point like he's recited yes. these words so many times and he's just going through the motions and then we get that shot going down all the jurors and right away you start to pick out the different personalities of all these jurors yes. as they're listening just the way they carry themselves yep it's it's great and and from there on, like it hits the ground running with that, and it just keeps going. And you you know you getting like half the cast. I didn't like I I didn't know who was in this movie, and then I saw you know Henry Fonda already. You, you've got me hooked with Henry Fonda, right? But Martin Balsam, I love him. I love him in Psycho. Uh, he's yep. probably honestly outside of Anthony Perkins, my favorite thing of Psycho is is Arbogast. I just there's just something about his performance. Um, and he's wonderful in this cause he's the jury foreman and he right. like, he's, he's trying to keep kind of control of the room, but he just sort of also is there and he's not really right. doing a great job of keeping control, but he's, he's trying. And that like, at one point he just sort of gives up. Uh, well, like, he has, how, like how he became the foreman, he just kind of gave up and fell into it. Yeah, basically. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah. yeah, I had no idea John Fiedler was in this. Of course, all I could hear the entire time is Piglet, but Winnie the Pooh, or, the or, 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 yeah, <laughs> yes, Piglet, like, absolutely. We, I did just watch an old uh, a Twilight Zone episode um, within the last year that had him in it uh, as well. Yes. It was Night of the Meek, uh, which is one of the better I, I, Twilight I'm, Zone episodes. I knew he was in a Twilight Zone. I don't, I don't remember the title of it, but I, I do. Rem- he's, he's very distinct. He is yeah. very distinct. If you get a if you get a chance to rewatch that episode of the Twilight Zone, is so good. It's though it's the episode with Art Carney as the department store Santa Claus, um, right? And uh, oh man, it's just it's great. But John Fiedler was in that, so like I had his, I had never really paid attention to his face prior to like seeing him in something mm-hmm. like that. I just always heard the voice. So I'm seeing right, seeing right. him like, hey, I know that guy, and then he starts talking I'm like, yep, there's there's John Fiedler, Lee J Cobb is this is yeah. i've seen clips of him in this movie so many times yes and he's so good in this and he and henry so fonda good. are the two like we're gonna get into it's re- what they did yeah it's really it's really really funny because like i always go through this and i go who did i like the most in this in terms of from like an acting <laughs> standpoint 
And I usually flip-flop between Henry Fonda and Lee J. Cobb. But Ed Begley Sr. Um, yeah. is He's fantastic in this. Um, I mean, I, I uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I like I didn't I didn't know he was in this at all. Uh, I yep. didn't, you know, E.G. Marshall, Jack Klugman um, popping Jack up. Klugman in one of his uh, first roles. Yeah. Yeah. Jack Warden. Jack Warden's Jack great Warden. throughout the whole thing. Like everybody, <laughs> everybody, is. all 12 of them. It doesn't matter who it is right down to, um, you know, probably George Voskovich uh, yep. and Robert Weber have like the least. um. <sighs> It's weird. I would say the least to do, but not really. It's fairly. That's the thing is this movie balances all 12 characters so well, even if your main like Henry Fonda and um, Lee J. Cobb are kind of your protagonist mm-hmm. antagonist. They're sort of leading each right. charge, but right. everybody is involved and every, every character is important to what's going right. on. Um, and this this movie shows you how debate should really go and <laughs> so so i mean I, I again i wasn't sure how how you wanted to start discussing this because like it's so applicable to today like there's oh. like there's all kinds of things in this like honestly this is what would you, what would you get if you got an internet influencer and or half internet influencers and half trolls and threw them into a room. Yeah. This kind of thing no, would you... happen because face to face people act differently. In fact, I would say in this movie, the negative, the trolls, I guess, who would be considered mm-hmm. trolls, um, are way more brave in person. Oh, for sure. But but absolutely, the discussion is allowed to happen. And, and there's give and take, um, including the guy that just says, you know, fine, not guilty. I don't care. i like, can we get out of here? <laughs> and then they don't let him off the hook. <laughs> and just, that, that's what's so great about it is the uh, 12 different people and they break them down and it's, it's real people. And it's, and it's the way those actual personalities would go. You've got, you know, and I also love the fact that there's no names throughout the movie. It's juror right. number one through 12. The a couple of them, Henry Fonda and the old man get names right at the very end of it. They right. don't matter. It um, doesn't matter. Yeah. It's kind of just a nice little moment between the two men before they, they walk away, but it's irrelevant to the movie. They're jurors eight and nine. Yes. I like that number one, because it takes a personal aspect of things out of it. And you, you know, you have like, uh, John Fiedler's character, juror number two, is the meek one. He's like, he's just happy to be there. You know, they start off, the first thing he says is like, well, it was a really interesting trial. And he's just interested in everything and kind of what's going on. And he's sort of just going with the flow. He's like, he's been convinced that, because it starts off, for those who haven't seen it, we're going to spoil the hell out of the movie, but it's seven, (laughs) it's almost 70 years old. So just go watch it. Trust me, you'll enjoy it. But it's 11 to 1. Uh, guilty to not guilty and they have to be unanimous and right. it's a murder trial so if they choose guilty the guy on trial is going to the chair he's going to be executed so juror number eight henry fonda is the lone holdout he's the lone one that says not guilty now here's here was the thing that i noticed and this was the most right off the bat the most brilliant part of this whole debate and discussion that was going on at no point 
in the hour and a half that we see them deliberating, does Henry Fonda's character say, no, this guy, this man is innocent. He never says right. that. Right. He starts That's the off, whole point. <laughs> yeah. He's, he starts off with a not guilty, but his reasoning is, well, I just don't know. I'm not convinced. He has a doubt and he doesn't want to make a snap decision that could end someone's life. And he wants to talk about it. And the other 11, over the course of the, the thing, he also does not try to ever change anyone's mind. That's the other right. like great thing that he does here is he never, because number three is constantly trying to change his mind. And the other 11 of them really start off trying to change his mind to get it to a guilty vote so they can get out of there. And you've well, got... and they, that's, I mean, that's how they start the first set of deliberation, right? I mean, they basically say, okay, so everybody else said guilty. We need to convince him why we think he's guilty. And, mm -hmm. and, and then that's how they go around the table the first time. And, yeah. and he doesn't take that tact at all. <laughs> he doesn't take that tact. He also never tells any of them that they're wrong per se. He even agrees right. half the time. He's like, well, you know, maybe it's, it's quite possible. The evidence points to this direction, but supposing, and that he does that and he never puts himself, he never goes on a defensive. He never right. gets angry with anybody or any sort of personal. He, one time he makes a personal attack, but we'll get to that moment because right. that's very calculated in my opinion. Yes. But he's constantly yes. like, he's agreeing with the people that he is at in opposition with. He is, and he's never trying to say, well, no, you're wrong and here's why, and you should change your mind. He's saying, no, you, you could be right, but you, but the facts could also be misremembered or there could be this that's going on or whatever it is. And so he's, he's dealing with these 11 other personalities. You've got Jack Warden sitting there next to him who just wants to get done and go to a baseball game. That's all he cares right. about. He's a salesman. Yep. He just wants to be out of there. Um, E.G. Marshall, juror number four, is extremely analytical, very dispassionate, only looks at the facts. Juror three, yep. Lee J. Cobb, is like, he's leading the charge. No, this guy's guilty, and he's very passionate about that. And he's the, he's the head troll. He's the one that's going to... He does almost the opposite of what Henry Fonda does. He is constantly right. telling people that they're wrong or trying to change their minds or contradicting himself a lot, too. Yes. Um, yeah. And we, and we find out why towards the very end of the movie, um, mm -hmm. which again, brilliant, like just, <laughs> just oh, the yeah. way that all comes together at the end. But, um, the, the, uh, the, the other thing that, that I, I want to make sure I point out is like when, when yeah. Henry Fonda is, um, saying, well, I have doubt, you know, he basically is just kind of beating the doubt drum the whole time. Yep. But during the during the movie, during the deliberation, he goes, maybe he did kill her or kill him, uh, his, his father. Mm -hmm. Maybe he did. But I don't know. I just don't know. Yeah. And, 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 and so he allowed for the possibility that the kid was guilty. Yeah. But. Doubt. Not only not only did he allow for the possibility that the kid is guilty, he even says on multiple occasions he probably is. He probably did it, but right. the uh, in fact the first thing that juror number two says is like, well, you know, I think he's guilty, and nobody could prove otherwise. And he immediately comes back with, well, it's not 
right. the job to prove innocence. It's the job to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. And, you know, the, then they, they have the, the scene, they start talking about the knife and how the knife is very unique and all of this. And what's he do? I love that, that whole moment because yep. he stands up and this is some filmmaking that I really, really enjoyed was the movie starts off. It's got that overhead shot as they're walking into the room, the camera's up real high behind that fan right. and you watch them all come into the room and they're milling about and they're doing their thing. And slowly over the course of the movie, the camera keeps coming lower and lower and keeps getting in tighter and, and tighter. In. Yep. Yep. And when they have the reveal of the knife, the, the, the juror number four has the knife and he pulls out the switchblade. He's being very analytical. Like, look, this is a strange looking knife. The guy who sold it to him said he's only ever had one in his inventory ever. And right. he sticks it into the table. And I think it was, I think it's Lee Cobb says, says something. And we get a, a quick, the shot reverses and it's Henry Fonda and it's tight in on him. And then he stands up. So his face is out of frame and we watch him reach into his pocket and pull out the exact same knife, flick right. it open and stab it in the table. And it's such yeah. a brilliant reveal. And you get all the 11 other guys are like, whoa, where'd that come from? And it's this really great turning point where he's again he's showing that there's reasonable doubt because a lot of the prosecution rested on this particular knife right and and what what's hilarious I love, is I that like love that. and and they say and they and, and they say to him it's illegal to buy switchblades and he goes mm -hmm. yep i broke the law <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and and he goes i went out for a walk and i i wandered into a pawn shop near this kid's neighborhood and I found it. So I broke the law. Um, and then the cool thing about the knife is later on when they give it back to the bailiff, um, they, they then refer to the knife again. And, and I think it's a uh, Lee J Cobb, uh, not Lee J Cobb, EG Marshall. No, Lee J Cobb picks it up and he goes, see and he and this, he stabbed him with this knife and they go, no, that's not the knife. Then we gave the knife back. Right. Um, just adding more doubt. And it was completely unnecessary, but it was just yet another layer of doubt just to put on there. And, just... and, and yet it's brilliant how the argument goes and he slowly layers more and more doubt because then it's like, okay, well now let's, let's look at some more of the evidence, right? The irrefutable facts were right. eyewitness testimony, which <laughs> we know now is really bad uh, and usually not admissible, but um like they start with the yeah the the glasses. I have the, marks on my nose. You do. Um, <laughs> do, but even before that, just the the whole thing with like the old man heard things. Yes, he heard the yelling, and they start to discuss that, and it's like that whole scene is great because they set up and they're they're miming out the old man getting up from his bed and walking across yep. the room, and fifteen seconds to, to whole, get to the door. <laughs> yeah, and during that whole thing again, Fonda never. His character never is just like, you're all dumb and you're, you're wrong. I, he's like, I want to figure this out. What do we, what do we get from right. this? As he's getting two or three different voices right in his face telling him, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? Um, just all of that kind of stuff. Then they start talking about, uh, they, they start getting psychological profiling of some of the witnesses and stuff. The old man talking about how the old witness just wanted to be heard. Right. And like, right there again, that's not evidentiary based, but it's, it's sowing doubt. There's doubt in his story. 
right. whether or not so that, it was intentional. So, th- so that brings up, uh, so the old man was played by Joseph Sweeney. And mm-hmm. so Joseph Sweeney and George Vuskovic were the only two guys that reprised their roles from the original Westinghouse play that was on TV uh, yes. a, a couple of years later. And, and uh, the Vuskovic one, I think, could have been interchangeable with somebody else. Uh, it, I mean, he was great. He was great. But I, I don't think he was nearly as impactful as Joseph Sweeney, who has the two scenes one where he's just talking about the old man wanting to be heard uh, and his epiphany when it came to the glasses. Um, yes. And, 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 and I just, I would have, like, I've watched the, what I deem is the terrible remake, <laughs> the made-for-TV remake that, was, that happened later on uh, with Tony Danza. Um, I, I really didn't like it. I think they lost all the subtlety and all the actual humanity in the, in the, in, in the, the actors. Hmm. Okay. Um, I, I, it just, that for me, they just, they didn't feel as real to me. Okay. Um, where these people all felt real. Like, honestly, I think that the, the if Ed Begley Jr., uh, Ed Begley Sr., rather, <laughs> um, was alive and I saw him on the street, I might feel differently about him versus based on his character <laughs> in the movie. Um, so, so that again is, is such a brilliant piece of writing and execution where you can plant the seed of something that you're going to pay off later in a very subtle, uh, yeah, subtle way yeah. and just sort of let it sail by. And if you're not paying attention, if you're not, if you're just, you know, you're, you're sort of, you're enthralled by Henry Fonda and the beginning of the movie, and you might miss the very um, obvious kind of racist undertones of what Ed Bagley's character is trying to say. And it just, they, they come back on it later in a way that is an incredibly powerful scene where they're oh, all walking turns away their from back. Him. Yeah. And just, oh. I mean, that really is like an iconic scene, right? Like you take a snapshot of that. And I mm-hmm. think that might've been one of the photos that I got <laughs> literally. Cause it was just like, you can read so much into everybody's posture that how they're looking, you could almost tell what everybody's going to vote based on just that still. Uh, it's just really, yeah. And, and the amazing so part is like, it's, it's almost a unanimous, like none of them really agree with him at all at that point. At and that the point, only yeah. one that doesn't turn away from him is four number four, who yep. really doesn't bring emotion into anything, but while he doesn't turn away and turn his back on him, he tells him to sit down and stop talking. And basically, like, yes. your speaking privileges have been revoked. You've lost that completely. So just just be quiet now. Um, but even, like, even juror number three, for all of his passion about this guy is guilty and he absolutely has to go away. And we, there's that moment where he's uh, earlier where he says, uh, we're, we're letting him slip through our fingers. And, like, he's, he's practically playing executioner to this guy even he turns away from ed bagley's character at that moment yes like all of them do it's it's really that that one like there were a few points in this movie where i was just floored by what i saw and that was one of them uh when fonda bait um oh. lee j cobb into losing it was so good and again he does it in a way that isn't like He's not being 
overly personal in his attack. Right. Because he even says, like, I feel sorry for you. You know, you feel this way, all of this. You're acting. You're, you're just, you're a sadist. And Cobb loses it. And we've right. already established that he has a short fuse. And he's mentioned right. that before. Yeah. And then in the aftermath of it, he mentions it again to juror number four as he's getting a, a drink of water. And juror number four is like, yeah, well, it worked. He baited you. So Right, right, right. Oh, you know, I'm excitable. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> But and, and just look the the one thing about that scene is it could have been it could have come off as kind of obvious and pandering, but but this is the brilliance of the acting in this movie is the reactions feel real to me. They they appealed yeah. they they feel organic and real to me. So when he says "I'll kill him," "I'll kill him," that felt like a genuine reaction. That just happened mm-hmm. to work out in the story. <laughs> it just, it's, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it, and that's that, again, that's the 12 performances where everybody is really being their characters. Nobody breaks character. Nobody does, there's no moments of any of the jurors acting any differently than what you would expect that, uh, that what we know of them makes sense. You know, juror 11 is very uh, quiet and, you know, George Vuskovich, he just, yep. he just hangs back. He listens and then slowly began to sort of say, Oh no, you know what this, they've got a good point and there is doubt. And his thing was the same as Fonda's character. He never comes right out and is like, no, you're all wrong. He's like, but he brings up a good point. There is some doubt there. Right. Um, you've got the juror 12, the ad executive who's just flip flopping. He's just constantly back and forth. And might be exactly the most annoying he, person in that, in that in that jury room. Oh yeah, because he <laughs> which is, which is ironic because like, he's not as evil as the others. <laughs> but <laughs> no, he's that, and that's the thing about him is he's like you've got some naive like juror two and juror twelve are both very naive characters, but in very different ways. Yes. Um and twelve is constantly like. He's got a little bit of this sort of, hey, look at me. Hey, check out what I'm talking about type of thing, which makes sense. He's an ad exec. So he's at one point he's showing the sketch of like the thing that he's working on at work or he's the one playing um, tic-tac-toe and not really paying attention. He's very comfortable in his bubble, Mm -hmm. but he's outside of his bubble. And so he's very uncomfortable, but he's trying to kind of act the same way that he would in this other bubble and it just doesn't work <laughs> like it falls yeah. flat every time he turns around yeah because um, he's just he's not in the right environment for the way that he's acting um right and and he's the one who never he can't when they go around and do another vote he can't make a decision right away because he doesn't really know what he what he thinks he's yep. kind of waiting to hear what everyone else thinks um and it's sort of the different like juror two is kind of going with the flow but he's quicker to um, sort of he's he's slowly figuring out how to stand up for himself. Well, he he. I mean, that's the other thing about this movie: character growth that just mm-hmm. happens. Like like you feel that these people have changed by this one experience. Like like it's and Fiedler is a perfect example, right? I mean, he just he's so meek at the beginning and just like so like I don't want to cause any waves. I'm just like hanging and. I'll see how this goes. And then he starts standing up for himself. And it's just, you get the feeling that he's just finally starting to get his legs. 
<laughs> yeah, and and you feel like he's getting the confidence to stand up to himself when he sees juror number nine, this frail looking kind of older gentleman, be the first one to give support to Fonda. And right. the reasoning behind that was like, look, it's not easy to do what this man is doing. He is opposing 11 other people on what should be a pretty obvious thing because he wants to have the conversation. I support that. And you can kind of feel like, well, juror number two, because he, I think he's the next one. I believe so. To switch yep. his vote. And so he got a lot of confidence out of that. And you got Jack Klugman um, as the, the character who, you know, he has, he has the closest relation to the defendant in that he grew up in a slum and his character. And he still, and he also skewed younger, like, like yeah. than, than the rest of the jurors. Yeah. So, and for him, and, and just seeing him, he, he just, yeah. he was, oh. he was very quiet, very like observe what's going on and didn't want to be treated poorly based on who he actually was. And then started getting his legs and being more confident and just going, look, I know this world. I am from this yeah. world. Um, and, and just, and, and by the time we get to the scene where he demonstrates how somebody would use that switchblade, um, yeah. you know, that's, that's, he's so confident at this point. He's just going, yeah, you would just do it this way. I, I don't know how anybody would do that. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, nobody who yeah, ever has so. used a knife would use it that way, right? He, he be, right. but it take it. You have you have to get that moment is earned for his character based on what's happened throughout yes. the movie to that point, um, as opposed yes. to just it just happening. Um, oh, agreed, agreed. Yeah, you know, and and yeah. part of it is earned when Lee Cobb confronts him as the one that changed his vote initially right. like he he immediately goes on that offensive and is like why did you do it and all this and he's like i didn't change my vote what are you talking about you know and right. then you've got next to him um edward bins who's the the painter um and he's the one that he stands up for other people right he stands up right. for the old man he's like you don't talk to him like that you know and gives him a moment and he's he's very compassionate towards other people uh, that comes out in a, in a completely different way, even though he's, you know, he's voting guilty at the beginning, but he's just sort of like when he's, when he's in the restroom with Henry Fonda and he talks about like, I'm not the supposing type. I'm not the thinking man type. I just go to work and I let my boss do the thinking. Right. Well, that's the thing. And like his character is really understated and, and he came across as kind of like the everyman. Like, like mm -hmm. in, in the, in this movie way more than everybody else, everybody else is even Henry Fonda to a certain extent, they're so strong in who they are, like, mm -hmm. like in this movie. And he just felt like a normal guy uh, yeah. to me. And, and so, so normal, rational guy that, you know, is part of the discussion, but he doesn't, he's not making waves. He's not, he's not a big giant character. He's just a guy and yeah, he's and, just there uh, and he takes in the info that's given to him and makes his yep. decisions based on that. And at the beginning of the movie, he's voting guilty because everything that he's been told leads him in that direction. But now he's, you know, over time he starts to question that because of the discussion that Henry Fonda has, which again is so brilliant in that he never says, no, this man is innocent. He's just like, there's doubt in what's going on here. 
Right. And that's right. all it takes is that reasonable, that, reasonable doubt. And see, hey, I, I love that so much because it's so consistent from beginning to end in this movie. It's just like it's not about guilt or innocence at yep. all. It's it's about doubt. <laughs> it is it and been even, called there's a reasonable doubt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, there's even a moment early on when Jack Warden's character says, like, look, you can talk for 100 years. You're not going to change my mind. And Fonda says, look, I'm not trying to change your mind. And that's the powerful part. That's the most powerful moment there is. He is at no point trying to change anyone's mind. Right. He lets all 11 of those other men come to the conclusion and change their own mind. Because you and I could sit here and debate something and be at opposite ends of it. And I'm never going to change your mind. And you're not going to change my mind. That's not, right. that just doesn't happen. That's not how it works. That's not how we're wired. But if we're having that conversation and we're willing to listen to each other, then there is the possibility that one of us or both of us can take in new information and change our own opinions on something. Right. And at the very least an this... understanding too, right? I mean, yeah. that's, that's the yeah. other part of that. Um, the beauty of the Jack Warden thing um, where he goes, you know, you can't change my mind in a hundred years. He's the one that flippantly changes his mind. He's just going, all right, you know what? I'm sick of this. Not guilty. It's like, yep. what, what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> which is yeah, he... which is when uh, I think it's it's uh, Vuskovic gets in his face and says, you can't do that. Like, like mm -hmm. which is also brilliant because if the point is to get to the not guilty verdict, which it's clearly not the point of this movie, but, <laughs> but, but if the point is to get to not guilty and he goes, Okay, fine. Not guilty. Well, we're one step closer, and the and the, and they go, no, you can't get off the hook like that. That's not the point of this. It's more important mm -hmm. than that. I yes. love that message so much. It's oh. it's just, oh, it's Jack again, Warden. I, yeah, <laughs> this movie gets me going because it's just so well done. Well, um, it's because like that character comes to the right conclusion for the wrong reasons. Yes. Yes. And that that is a that is a possible outcome of all of this you know you've got and and it's it, i also like the fact that it's 1950s new york city and it's the european immigrant that yes. points that out to the guy who's obviously lived in new york his whole life and yep i like that uh the vuskovich character um in general he's such a a, a cool character in that like we slowly learn a bit, a little bit more about him. He's a watchmaker and he's, he really enjoys uh, democracy and he's happy to be here and be part of this process. Something that he probably couldn't do back home, wherever he's from. Um, but also right. like he's got, he's got my favorite line in the movie, which is when he uh, slaps down Ed Bagley, which I did record. It's one oh. of the few things I recorded from oh, this movie. Okay, good. Cause, cause I actually made a note of that too. Cause it, it's, it's <laughs> so what's funny is it's kind of a trope at this point. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's like, oh, yeah. It, and, and, and I think this might have been where it came from. <laughs> it's I think early so. In enough. fact, I'm, I'm just going to play it right now because yeah. he's at this point, we've had this character who he is where, where juror number two is very meek and juror number 12 is kind of, he's not demonstrative, but he's very talkative and he's very, you right. know, he's, he's the ad guy. He's juror number guy. 11 is very polite. He never gets in it. He doesn't, he'll get in somebody's face, but he'll do it in a way that never comes across as mean spirited. 
And he said, very respectful. Yes, and he he said multiple times, you know, excuse me, beg pardon, I'd like to say this. He's never, he doesn't get super loud, but he says it one more time. And this, this audio clip is great. And it's, beg pardon. I beg pardon. What are you so polite about? For the same reason you're not, it's the way I was brought up. (laughs) It's such a good one. For the same reason you're not. (laughs) That's funny because that's not the quote I was thinking. I was oh, really? a completely okay. different one, but, but yeah, we'll get, no, we'll, go we'll ahead get to that ahead, one. But, but like, it's so great. Cause yep. it, you know, it, he put, he just slaps Ed Bagley right down and to, to Ed Bagley's credit as an actor, his, re, his reaction to it is perfect. He just like, Oh, oh fine. And he just sits down and you kind of see him slump his shoulders a little bit. Like he's just been put in his place and by this right. guy in, but in the most polite way possible too. Right. Right, right. <laughs> it's so, yeah, so good. Yeah, and okay. And what actually, was yours? It was yeah. So um, Ed Begley uh, says uh, we, when they're talking about the kid, Ed Begley says uh, he don't even speak good English. Oh yes. And Vuskovic is the one that says he doesn't even speak good English, <laughs> which is which is the, the trope I was thinking because that I, I've seen that as a as a trope too, like all over the place. Yeah, but but. Oh, yeah. Um, but it just it's another one of those like subtle slams <laughs> to to him just, about preconceived notions, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he like what I liked too was there was with, with Ed Bagley's character, Jur Ten, they again, like I said earlier, they plant the seed of like this guy is racist and he he's he's got a preconceived notion of who the defendant is and that's why he's voting guilty. Yep. And Fonda calls him out on that early and then just lets it go. He says, well, why are you believing her testimony? She's one of them too. And you get the response from juror 10 and Fonda does that and then just goes right back to what he's doing. Yep. So it's like juror eight, juror eight does all this stuff where he's agreeing with other people where he's being very like uh, easy to, to, to debate with, but then he has his moral stands that he will go on and he will slap somebody down, but he won't make yeah. a huge show of it. He will do it and move right on. Right. And he did it there. And right. I, I love like, that was such a great moment. Um, when he grabbed yeah. the paper, when they were playing tic-tac-toe that bothered him. Right. And that happened earlier yeah. when, uh, juror 10 wanted to start telling a story. He's like, that's not why we're here. Right. Let's, let's focus on this. And then they they get distracted. You know, they're playing tic-tac-toe and he grabs the paper very angrily and crumples it up. And then goes right back well, to his point. And then others start like treating the, treating the whole deliberation as seriously as he, as Henry Fonda started, you know, so mm-hmm. he's like, yes. we're not here for that. Right. And then others, Martin Balsam was one of them. Like, even though he was still voting guilty, he was just like going, look, we need to stay on track. We need to just keep doing this. We're, you know, this, we're not here for that. We're not here for that. We, we got to keep doing this. Yes. Um, the, uh, the the other Ed Begley thing that I thought was great was they're talking about how long it takes to for for him to get out of bed and walk to the front door uh, mm-hmm. to see the kid because he had said it was ten fifteen seconds or, and and I think it was Lee J Cobb was like going uh, it was fifteen seconds he said fifteen and everybody's going no he said ten and and Ed Begley's going. He, he's an old man. How could he possibly be positive about anything? Mm-hmm. And he oh, yeah. and then he takes a beat and he goes, 
oh, oh crap. <laughs> yep, exactly. Like he contradicts himself yep. and immediately realizes it. And I think that was actually, it was Cobb that made that recollection. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You're, you're right. You're right. Um, yeah. But yeah, and, it's and, such a, that's, that was such a great moment where he's like, how could he be positive about anything? It's like, because again, Cobb, his character, Juror 3, is so passionate about his stance. And he's yes. going to say anything. He's going to automatically go against anything anybody says that doesn't align with what he wants and what he right. thinks, which is the polar well, opposite of what Juror 8 does. When somebody brings up a, a dissenting opinion against Henry Fonda, his response is always, well, you know, that might that could be true. But what if it isn't? Right. He never says like, but whereas Cobb is immediately like, no, you're wrong. Of course, it's this way. And it's that diametric uh, opposition that makes their two characters so interesting against each other. I think it also speaks to like, I, I don't know if you've ever been uh, in a situation where uh, you're at you're at work or you're doing something and you've got a plan. You, you're going, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it this way. It's going to work. I've got this all planned out. Everything's cool. And then somebody challenges that plan and you, mm -hmm. the first instinct is to go immediately on the defensive. Oh yeah. Um, and, and whether or not that's the right decision doesn't matter. That's just kind of like instinct. Right. And, and I think yeah. he, get, he gets stuck in that. And his his personality is such that he's so stubborn that he cannot let that go. Like he has to be right because he already planned it out or not even planned it out, but he had it in his mind. I justified it to myself, so I must be right. right. And and so wrong. <laughs> yeah. And and he's made he's made that decision and that's it. That's final. He can't change that. Whereas Fonda has not sure. And he's even brought up like juror six talks to him in the restroom. It's like, well, okay, but what if you're wrong? What if we, we let this kid go and then he goes out and he kills someone else. And right. there's that moment where we get just a, a shot that kind of pushes in on, on Henry Fonda. And he's got this look on his face, like, man, that, you know, that, that could happen. And I could be wrong on this. Right. But he, but he stays with his idea that like, but I don't know. And, right. and he doesn't want to make, that decision without being a hundred percent sure. And that's yes. really what it comes down to is he is willing to listen to other things and he's willing to be wrong because he believes that that is the just thing to do. And juror number three, especially is unwilling to be wrong. And we've all had arguments and debates and conversations with somebody who refuses to ever be wrong. Yes. On, on, on anything or at least certain things. And it's so hard to talk with them. And again, like I said, you're not going to change their mind, but what can happen is you can show them that, uh, that the possibility exists, that the opposite could be true and they can change their own. They have to come to that conclusion themselves. It takes all of what goes on in this hour and a half for juror number three to change his own mind and realize what he was doing which was projecting his problems onto this case. Right. Right. Well, cause we, we, and we see, we see the whole, um, uh, he tell, you know, we see him crack a little bit pretty early on when he pulls out the picture of his kid. Mm -hmm. Right. And then he tells the little story about his kid, uh, he, how he, you know, he disciplined his kid. And when he, when his kid backed down from a fight, he got embarrassed 
for him and said, yeah. I'm going to make a man out of you if I have to break you in two. And he did. I mean, he, he broke him in two, basically, until his kid punched him in the face when he was 16 and took off. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so what's really cool is that you see him. He never verbalizes it. But you see him, well, I guess the closest he comes is at the end, is towards the end. But but you see him struggling, even in that moment, going, maybe that wasn't the right way to handle him. Maybe it wasn't. But yeah. but that's the way oh. my dad handled it with me. And 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 that's the way I, you know, he, but but like I just you see that little crack. And then and then he and then he's so uh invested in being correct that he lets that crack go and, and, yep. uh, and that so. is the difference between the writing and performance of a character and a caricature. Right. Because there's right. depth there. So he's, uh, so yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, just that, that, that extra, that extra little bit, that moment in early on when he first pulls the picture out of his kid and he says, you know, you haven't, I haven't seen him in two years and there's, and it's just that little bit of depth. And then he, he strengthens it almost galvanizes and strengthens his resolve to be like, no, I am right. I'm going to fight even more for this. And then he spends the next hour back on the offensive and, and really being even louder about his whole point. And it, but it's great because without that quiet moment, it, that helps him to earn all these, these proceeding or these, the, the next moments in the, right. in the movie. Right, because if he's because because uh, if it, and and the galvanizing is purposeful, right? Because if he's mm -hmm. not if he can't be resolved in him being right, then that allows in the guilt for driving his son away. Yep, and and he cannot allow that because that would break him, and which yeah, absolutely ultimately does, right? Mm -hmm. It ultimately does. Um, so the now the one thing um, about this movie. Um, from from some of the reading that I've done, uh, Sidney Lamette. Um, I, I don't. I, I always screw up his last name. I can never remember if it's Lamette or Lemay. But um, he is. This is his first feature film. Yeah. Which what a way to come out of the box, <laughs> block, right? So so. Um, but he had the cast rehearsing in an enclosed space like that for two weeks, solid with no breaks. <laughs> Which you don't do for film. Like that's a that is a stage play thing. And this is a stage play on film. Right. But that is the type of thing you do that. But he, but it works here because this movie needs that. And and I've heard it Lamette, so um yeah. we'll go with that. Yeah. But he knew that. And he was brought in to direct because he had done um television yeah. and he kind of was able to do, you know, he was, he was inexpensive. He was young. He was, he needed to prove himself as a film director, but also this idea of like doing that is such a brilliant move on his part because this movie needs all 12 performances to be on point or it falls apart. As you said, right. if I haven't seen the remake, the 97 TV movie, I'm curious to see it because the cast blows me away. Uh, yeah, the cast the most is the cast is better than the movie was by a lot, unfortunately. <laughs> but but it's this thing where if all twelve of them aren't on their A game and and know these characters, it doesn't work. And because like if I didn't know that they if I hadn't read that they had rehearsed for two weeks ahead of time or something like that, 
there's just some way you could tell like they had to have done some pretty pretty heavy rehearsing prior yeah. to this because these perform because these performances are also there's a lot of there's a mixture of kind of single person two person takes where you yep. could tell maybe they just had like they had a day where just Jack Warden was in for half the day and they just shot stuff with him get a setup do a bunch of shots of him in that location that that setup and then move on um but there's so many of them that are long wide shots where it's two three four or all 12 of them in the shot and they all have to do what they're doing and right in, in making a film time is money and takes cost more right and to get all of those and nail them like that opening shot there's so much going on and like i said i'm always a sucker for the long take because from a filmmaking standpoint it's just there's so much that goes into that and here was one that had almost no camera movement at all and it's all your actors that and moving around and it's just brilliant and it yes. takes a director to pull that off that's where a director really shines through and and he nailed it and i mean sydney went on to have a hell of a career yes um but for a feature film debut to be 12 angry oh. men like some directors just have that you know i had uh yes it was ari aster recently with um uh uh hereditary like as a feature film directorial debut the guy makes hereditary like, that's not fair you know and this is another one of those 12 angry men he goes on he does uh, what was the the one he did with um, shoot? Uh, well, network. I mean, Dog Day oh, right. Afternoon Network, Serpico. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's no slouch. No, not at all. <laughs> you know, and he kept directing up uh, up until like 2007. Uh, he ends it with "Before the Devil Knows You're Dead." I mean, he yeah. just and he could direct actors. And that is a big thing. Yes. And that's what this movie needed was. And I have no idea what the onset situation was like, how these actors all meshed, but no one of them ever felt like they tried to take over and do more than what mm -hmm. was written for their character. Like Lee Cobb, obviously his character is supposed to get loud and be demonstrative and be a focal point. And same with Henry right. Fonda, but they never felt like they were trying to be. They always right. felt like they were doing it within the script and within the story. And which, which, which I think you nailed it when you said character versus caricature. I mean, because, mm -hmm. because they, every person feels like they could have been real to me. Yeah. Every, every, oh, absolutely. And, and, and I, I just, I find that fascinating that an actor can pull that off. Um, mm -hmm. And, and what, regardless of what method you use. <laughs> you know, right. it just, it just, I don't care. I don't care. Cause if you can pull that off, great. That's all I care about. Um, it's, uh, the, the, there were, there were a few just filmmaking things that, that, uh, always just kill me. Um, and so, uh, so actually the, what, what's funny for me is the long shot coming into the courtroom and then actually being in the courtroom, I mm -hmm. always forget that's the opening shot. I I just I'm always so hyper focused on the deliberation room, yeah. and that's also magnified by the fact that because the union, for all intents and purposes, if it existed at all, was not what it is now. Um, in the credits, it's the jurors and the bailiff. That's it. Yeah, 
for for the credits for the acting yep. credits and we found out later on who the other people were i had forgotten they showed us the kid like literally yeah. I, I it it didn't even occur to me and i'm going wow they give us a nice long shot not long but tight shot of of the kid and i'm going we we see him like full on we see him but you're right about the judge too um where i think and maybe i'm wrong maybe i'm reading into it but i think he had like his head his hand his head in his hand while he's giving oh, instructions yeah, to the jury and and i'm going oh yeah okay all right so he's disinterested um mm-hmm. but um so one of the scenes that just kills me and this is because the level of sweat in this movie <laughs> is probably second to cool hand luke i mean <laughs> it's it's yeah it's right uh, up there it's like uh i mean it you know it's hunt for red october when the ac goes out in the sub right right it's that level of stuff and when jack klugman turns to eg marshall and says don't you ever sweat because he was the only guy not sweating and he goes no and then maybe half hour later there's one bead of sweat coming down his forehead um and that's the moment where he has doubt. Yep. That's the moment not, he by the cracks. Way, not only does he not sweat, he's the only one that doesn't take his jacket off. Right. The whole time. He leaves <laughs> his suit jacket on. Everyone else is taking their jackets off, fanning themselves, whatever they can do. And he just, he's completely emotionless. He's the stockbroker. He's the logic-based character right. who doesn't think, doesn't use emotion or anything. He's a workaholic. And all that, yep. and you're right. He breaks, and that's shown by that one bead of sweat going down his forehead. And I was like, "Oh, he's flipping soon." Yep. Uh, and, and meanwhile, you got you know, Martin Balsam <laughs> is just sweating through his shirt. He's got sweat stain, like pit stains right. that are just growing the whole movie. Yep. Everybody's what, just covered in glycerin, and it just everyone's so sweaty. And and look, maybe I've seen this this movie too many times, and maybe maybe <laughs> I'm just reading into it. But when E.G. Marshall um, says. Um, no, I don't sweat. I start reading into it like, because if I did, that means I would start breaking. And if I start breaking, bad things happen. Like, like I just, I, I just, it, it, he has to keep himself so composed that it very I, well could I, be. I got so uncomfortable with that at times where I'm going, if he comes unraveled, things, bad things are going to happen. Like, like just bad things are going to happen. And, and, mm-hmm. and he never does really. I mean, except for that, that bead of sweat, which from a filmmaking, filmmaking standpoint was just brilliant because there was no yeah. explanation. There was no, like even no, there was no even dabbing it. Like he just, it was nope. just there. And no, like there wasn't a tension called to it either. It was just a single shot of him as he's being, and that was when Fonda was questioning him about his week and kind of showing him that, yeah, you can't necessarily remember every detail of everything. And he, because he even says like, and you're not even emotionally compromised right now. Right. Right. And ask him about the movies that he went to see on on Monday. Yep. Yep. And And then John, John Fiedler corrects him on the title. It's like, Oh, I had yeah. notes to myself like this whole scene is done in a single take. Fabulous. I don't know which scene I was even referencing. Though. That could have been. There's like a half a dozen different things that could have been at that point. Yeah. Um, um, the, and, the other. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just. Uh, it, it, it's that whole idea of of being trapped in this room 
for the entirety of the time that it's going on. And the fact that it just keeps getting sweatier and sweatier too. Like as an audience, we're stuck there. We're inside of this. We can't get away from it. We don't cut away to anyone to, to something happening in another room or another part of the city or outside or anything. Yeah. Yeah. It's this and that's it. And you can't escape that. And we're going to be here until there's a resolution. And the sweatier it becomes, the tighter the shots get. Um, yes, and, that too. You know, it just—it's just um, the the uh, the the other brilliant thing I thought from a director standpoint is having the jurors sit in the order that they that their numbers were, so that we yeah. could easily identify without names who was who. Yes. Oh, and, that was. And, it, it, it and, comes then, back and then to, they I've go, about go around the table. Then they go around the table, and you get to know who they are just mm-hmm. in, the, in that first deliberation. It's just uh, so good. Well, and I've talked about this in other reviews and other shows and things like that. In an action sequence, when a director is setting up a, a, an action set piece in a film, the geography of that set piece is always incredibly important. And the good action directors... Say what you want about Michael Bay. Michael Bay can set up an action set piece so that you know where everyone is in relation to the geography, in relation to each other, and you can follow the action and what's going on. Yep. And lesser directors can sometimes fall apart of uh, fall short of that if they don't have as much uh, action directing uh, experience or sometimes it's just the movie just doesn't work out the way they shot it and then they had to change things in the edit. Uh, the one that I like to come back to is the remake of Clash of the Titans. There's an action scene in that where I was in the theater and I was just like, I don't know where, who's where or who's fighting what at this point. I'm lost. And I shouldn't feel that way in an action sequence. And Sidney Lumet in this movie did that with a courtroom deliberation scene. He set us up in the beginning right. and you're spot on with that. Puts everybody in this, in in position and gives us the layout of everything. So now we know all of these people, who they are, and we can follow that for the rest where of the movie, where they're next sitting. Hour and, yeah. Even when they get up and move around and all of this, we never, you, know you never lose sight is. of who's who. Yeah. Right. It's so like, right. that's such a with stroke no of genius. Yeah. With no names at all. That's storytelling. That's such great storytelling and yeah. treats your audience with respect too. Because you don't yeah. have to have them constantly like a, a a lesser version of this idea would have everybody be giving their names at the beginning of the movie and yes. constantly yes. referring to each other by their names, sort of doing that. I made the joke when I um, reviewed Titanic a few uh, months back that uh, I was going to do a supercut of every time Jack uh, said Rose's name and Rose said Jack's name in the movie. And I gave up 15 minutes in because I had already <laughs> clipped like 40 times that they had done it. Yeah. Um, but we don't need that. Like people don't talk that way. And so right. doing something like that is a great storytelling tr- or trick to then they don't have to constantly be like, well, Jim, well, Je- you know, Jeff, Mr. Whatever. They can just talk and they're having what feel like natural conversations. No, cause that's the other part of it. They all feel like real people. And these feel like actual conversations. There's very few times where I felt like people were reading lines. The closest I got to that was Joseph Sweeney a couple of times, but it's, it's meant to be that way because he's almost giving a sermon. And they even, 
uh, Jack Warden even makes that comment. Like, it isn't Sunday. We don't need a sermon. But like, that's his character does that. Right. So it's right. it fits for him. But also, that's the only time where it ever feels like somebody delivering lines. And that feels like his character, as opposed to everybody else, is giving, is actually having a conversation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, clearly, at no point did you find it unusual that one of them said, oh, hey, I'm Jim. What's your name? <laughs> like, because it yeah. didn't matter. They they said what they did and, mm-hmm. you know, when it was appropriate. And so you got as, because really, the names don't matter. Because nope, it's like it's about who they are, right? And so, yeah, it, it's uh, God. It just and, and I keep you saying can it's tell, so good, but I can't help it. <laughs> well, you're not wrong, and you can tell how good a story is by how many times it gets recycled and remade. Because if you yes. look at like, yes, there are things like. Um, uh, Winnie the Pooh or the Lord of the Rings, or I'm trying to think of even stuff prior to that. Some of the HG Wells stories that have gone public domain that get remade because they're, they're cheap to do because they don't have to pay a right. Right. But at the same time, there are plenty of other public stories from those eras that are public domain that anybody could remake that don't get made because they're not as compelling right. a story. They're not as interesting of a story. 12 angry men was such a good script that it has it had the 97 TV movie. And I want to say, I mean, it has been remade in just about every language uh, somewhere. Yeah, there, was a there's pretty, a, it, there was a Chinese one, I think, and I think there was yeah. a Russian one that were pretty notable. Um, the Indian there was also one was very a, notable, too. Yep. There was also a, um, a TV, a, another TV movie that happened um, uh, in the 60s. Um, and, and the, the interesting thing with that one is, and I, and I did pull up the information here, Voskovec is playing juror 11 again, and Sweeney is playing, um, juror nine. Um, Norman fell is the foreman. Hmm. So Mr. Roper as the foreman. Now he would have been pretty young in mm-hmm. 1964 um yeah. and i've seen him in some early stuff and i could see him playing that role absolutely um oh sure but but yeah it's uh the, so I, I think i've seen I, I may have seen that one on youtube and i think i saw the westinghouse playhouse one um as well uh, just it, you know, and the video is terrible. Um, uh, the Westinghouse one was set up like a stage play, which is why it went to it. I think it went from there to it went to the stage right before they made the the movie. The, yeah, because I I remember reading that the they had like a, it was an old kinescope of the Westinghouse broadcast, and yeah. for a long time they only had part of it, and then somebody right. found it, um, yeah. which is really cool that they had that, uh, but. Um, yeah, just all like, I want to say there was a German remake of this story. There was like one from one of the Scandinavian countries that was pretty well known. It even like they would work it into Andy Griffith did a full episode of the Andy Griffith show with Aunt B. Um, yeah. I like that that one had a young, the the criminal and that was Jack Nicholson. That was a fun little right. Uh, right. trivia. Yeah. Um, just, but I think there was a Simpsons you, episode where they oh, did I'm it. Oh, I'm sure. Like, um, and that... 
for a story to work itself that much into the zeitgeist of and and not just american productions but worldwide yep. tells you how important of a story it really is to tell and how it's a it it follows what i've said a lot which is keep the story and the plot simple let the characters and their actions be the complex parts of it this is yep. a very simple thing it's 12 men in a room deliberating guilty not guilty that's it that's all you yep. need and then let the characters dictate that and that can then be translated to any culture uh you want basically like you can manipulate that and and fit it into whatever you're doing because it's not about individual story beats it's about creating and crafting the characters and then putting them in that situation and letting them be because you might you might have something where the you know that that racist character that i vaguely played doesn't always have to be the same character or even the same type of person it's just somebody who is who who believes something that is so opposed in where who right. you know by the group that they're willing that they're all willing to just turn their backs on them and basically tell them shut up we don't we're not listening to you at all anymore um right i just that it's so it's it's powerful the whole thing is powerful and that's why it can be redone so many times yeah i and now i've never seen any of the foreign versions i wonder how well they would uh, i i wonder about what the adaptations would need to be because reasonable doubt at least here in the u.s is really damn important <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. in, ter- in terms of our court, our court proceedings. Um, and I don't know, and I'm just ignorant of how it is in other countries. Um, sure. and, and, and if it's, and if reasonable doubt isn't a core part of their um, proceedings, you can certainly still do the movie and go, look, we have doubts and, and I'm not willing to say they're guilty if I have doubt without it being a legal thing, right? You can certainly yeah. go down that road. Um, I just, but, for, but I wonder how much of the power of reasonable doubt for me in this movie would translate when that core tenant isn't there. It'd be interesting to see, right? Because it, it would have to obviously fit with whatever judicial system or whatever system they're basing it in. But it's sort of the 12, it, I almost think of it as like, as I as I've you know been thinking about the movie this past few days after watching it for the first time, that um, it's sort of Twelve Angry Men is kind of like a Rashomon, where it's almost a, a type of story. You have like because you right. can adapt the Rashomon storytelling into anything you want, and it has been because it's a very powerful right. piece of narrative. The Twelve Angry Men style of narrative can really work in just about any situation because all you need really is a group of people that are all going in one direction and one person that is a dissenting opinion. And then it's about, well, okay, what happens there? How does that all go? So it's a very malleable story. Uh, And in this case, I found it very compelling for a lot of the reasons that you did, which is that reasonable doubt uh, in the judicial system and the progressive idea of that, well, all like the the progressive nature of the story, while also still being relevant today, se- almost seventy years later, and so many of the things they're talking about are still relevant and still important, and that's both fascinating and scary at the same time. Yes, that we yes. haven't evolved all that much, 
uh, and yet like certain things have changed. You know, if you did, obviously if you did the story today, the room wouldn't be 12 white guys and right. or 12 white well, guys and one European immigrant. And in the remake um, TV movie, it, it wasn't. That's true. Cause the remake had uh, what Courtney B Vance, uh, yep. Ozzie Davis. I mean that, that Edward cast James just, almost. Yeah. No, the cast is great. Cast kills me. Hume Cronin, Jack Lemon. Well, Hume I mean, Cronin, you know, which part he's playing. Right, he's playing oh, Juror yeah. Nine, and and he would he be is. fantastic. Like you would think he would be amazing in that. In that, I just really did not like the direction <laughs> in that. It just felt it. It felt like a production. But it also, and and again, it can be something as simple as a different director. In this case, it's Bill Friedkin. He's a different type of director from Sidney Lumet. So, yes. you know. It's it's like seeing. I mean, another example of something along those lines would be the the remake of Psycho. You know, it's shot for shot. It's yeah. the same thing. The cast of that remake is pretty damn good, but it's missing something that Hitchcock had. That that um, right. was it. Van Zant, I think Gus Van Zant that did the remake. Yep, yep, yep. Um, he just he wasn't able able to capture that same thing. Now, granted doing a shot for shot remakes kind of like, well, what's the point? But it's just, there's, there's like a, it, it shows you there's a secret sauce. There's something missing that, uh, that Hitchcock uh, was able to get. So I wonder though, I wonder if part of that is because the remake was fully in color, obviously. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and Alfred Hitchcock was a master of light. Um, right. So, so a lot of the power from from the great filmmakers, frankly, from in the black and white era, comes from look. We don't have color, so we have to make do with shadows and lighting, and and you know, basically, the lighting in a lot of great movies appears to be a, another character almost. Uh, it's just well, and yeah, and I think Hitchcock was like he made the decision to do Psycho in black and white. There was right. color films going on, but he was like, no, right. I'm going to make, I want to do this in black and white. And that helped this movie being in black and white, I think actually lends a little something to it because I, I think so it's too. sort of, it levels the playing field of all the characters to where you're paying attention to their performance and their words a lot more because they all look pretty similar. Right. What, what, so, what I find interesting is I wonder, cause I, I know younger people, and usually 20 or, or, or under who, if you throw a black and white movie in front of them, they glaze over and they go, I, uh, I, I don't know what you, what you want me to do here. <laughs> um, and I wonder, mindset. it really is. Yeah. But I wonder in a movie like this, if they gave it five minutes, now, you know what? I'll say 10 minutes, let them get to the jury room. Um, <laughs> and, yeah. and I wonder, I, I wonder if it would, if it if it would still capture, um, it's hard to say because you have to be able to walk into it with an open mind, right? To to it's a hurdle to get past for somebody who isn't used to seeing things in black and white for whatever reason that is. Um, right. So it's going to be a hurdle. It's like any time, and I think that part of it for you with that ninety seven remake of Twelve Angry Men is for you this movie is very important, and then to watch a remake of it. That that ninety seven movie is never ever. It's impossible for it to live up to this movie. 
Like you just, are that's, probably it correct. cannot happen. You are probably correct. And and I feel that way about a lot of uh movies that have had remakes. Like particularly if if I if I love the original. Um mm-hmm. if I if I oh, yeah. if I just feel like meh about the original then okay, whatever. I don't care. Um well, cause but it's so easy because we bring our baggage with us when we watch a movie. And yes. that's why I I make it a point for myself that even if I don't like a movie, I oftentimes in the right situation will give something a second try. Uh, there's very few times where I'm just like, I there's, there's some movies that I never want to watch again for a host of reasons. Um, yeah. But if it's a movie where I watched it and I'm like, hey, that's kind of not that great. I might down the road, give it a second try because I'm a, I'm going to be a different person watching it the second time. I'm going to be in a different mindset. I'm bringing all sorts of different experiences to that. What do I think about it? And sometimes the, the one I bring up all the time, um, because it's the most glaring, obvious one for me is event horizon. That mm. was a movie. I saw it in the theater and I did not like it the first viewing because I wasn't prepared for what the movie was. I brought in my preconceived notions of what I thought the movie was going to be based on all the marketing that I had seen and where I was in my mindset, I wasn't prepared for the splatterhouse horror film that it was. But when I watched it again, a couple of years later, when some friends were like, Oh yeah, no, this this movie's great. And I'm like, you know, I was, I was kind of in a captured situation. I couldn't really do anything about it. So I'm like, fine, sat down and watched it and I loved it. And it became a movie that I can go to all the time because I knew I, I had a better idea and understanding of what I was getting into. Um, and the same thing can happen when you watch a legacy sequel or a remake where you're bringing, you're always bringing your baggage baggage of that original with you. And sometimes you have to shake that off and be like, this isn't the same thing. You know, enemy mine is a remake that does something new and you can watch it on its own. And it's great. I've seen other remakes of stuff. Um, or, or sort of reimaginings of things where they try something new and that helps, that helps you to break away from the old one. So, so, um, uh, just, uh, just cause I'm, I'm a little stuck. So enemy mine, the Lou Gossett version was a remake. It was uh, a retelling of like a, a movie based in, uh, based in world war two. Didn't even know that. Didn't, didn't See, even so like, realize that. Yeah. And, and I loved enemy mine. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I thought it was great. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but seeing some of those, um, like that can that can obviously help. But also, uh, you know, a, a recent example is going in and seeing Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, like which I haven't seen yet. But <laughs> I have, I enjoy yeah. it. But I know going into that movie, I can tell myself it doesn't matter what this movie does. It can't it can't be what Raiders of the Lost Ark was for me as a kid. It can't sure. be what La- Last Crusade was. Same thing with the Star Wars movies. No, I don't yeah. think the newer Star Wars movies are as good, but that's me because yes. I grew up with a different set of them. And so I that you you bring up a great point on that. Um I so I look, I went to the theater and saw all the original Star Wars movies from the 70s forward because you know, mm-hmm. my very first little kid date, I was in 5th grade. <laughs> went I went and saw the original Star Wars in the theater. Um the prequels came out and I despised them. Like I <laughs> just, I found like, I hated them. Like there's a lot. I did like a whole bunch of things that I did not like. 
Years later, A Force Awakens comes out. And I go in and go, okay, I'm giving them a chance. Let's see what happens. And look, you can argue that Force Awakens is a beat-for-beat remake (laughs) of of, uh, A A New Hope. And for me, that's the Star Wars I needed at that time. Yep. I really enjoyed A Force Awakens. J.J. Abrams is great at hitting those nostalgia points. And it was one of the things that, so I won't give anything away about Dial of Destiny, but what Dial of Destiny did that I enjoyed was Kingdom of the Crystal Skull came out and what it wanted to be was a legacy sequel to the Indiana Jones trilogy. And it was very on the nose, very, you know, Spielberg and, and Lucas were kind of trying to tell you they were in on the joke. And they were like, hey, hey, you know, you remember this type of stuff? Remember these? James Mangold, I feel like as a director, can do that same thing without it being so on the nose and being in your face about it. He's just like, he's able to give you those same feelings without it feeling like somebody cosplaying as right. that thing. And so right. that's a that's a great way to put it. Uh, Daniora in the chat mentions, you know, the movie for her that was like that was Shaun of the Dead sort of not being prepared for the level of horror that was going to be in the horror comedy. Fair. Because the movie is very funny, but if you're not prepared for that, it's going to be right. tough. <laughs> right. You know, because right. uh, horror comedies are always hard because they need to have enough of both. A good horror comedy is worth its weight in gold because it can balance those two things. Um, I'm not a big horror fan, but that that balance is why Toxic Avenger hits for me. <laughs> um, and it hits hard. And, and I... I have a love-hate relationship with it. I'll watch it all the time. I will watch it all the time if, if, if I run across it. But it's not a great movie, but it, the balance works for me. <laughs> I don't know why. Yep. <laughs> it's that trauma yeah. thing. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, you know, there's, there, there's a certain level of camp you have to have uh, sometimes. Certain things can just do that and do it well. Um, right. And, you know, getting back to 12 Angry Men, it's a very simple movie that does what it does so well. And yes. I am mad at myself for how long it took me to see this movie. But I tell you what, <laughs> I am going to sing its praises for as long as I can because it's fantastic. It is such a well-structured, well-executed story. And yeah, I could watch it over and over and pick out different things all the time. And I found... And I'm going to dive into it because I'm going to be fascinated by it. I know there's a YouTube channel that a few years ago started breaking down um, the way debate is done in and using 12 Angry Men as an example of how to do things, uh, how to do debate and how it can work. And uh, I watched part of one video on that and I was like, nope, I'm not going to let this color my... uh, my conceptions of the movie yet i will talk about it and then i will come back and i will dive into this but i'm going to go just both feet into the pool with that one because i think it's fascinating it's really changed such a simple thing yeah and it's it's changed the way that i communicate with people like like i just it, it it just it's it's had that much of an impact on me where where i um i i I'm not always successful, but I try to let go of that steadfast resolve when it comes to whatever, whatever I'm, I'm talking about. Like, like, so, so just Mm -hmm. to allow for questions, allow for that reasonable doubt. 
Well, because honestly, in order to have discourse with other people, you have to be able to see and listen to other viewpoints than your own. If you only ever can think of your own viewpoint, you're never going to evolve as a person. And being willing to A, be wrong or have the potential to be wrong and B, listen to someone else and genuinely listen to them, not just wait for your turn to talk, which was the other thing that that this movie did so well is juror number eight, Henry Fonda, was constantly willing to listen to other people when they had something to yep. say and and ignore them when they didn't. If juror 10 started to say something that he didn't that was not useful to the conversation, he would just ignore it and go on with his point. But if somebody had something genuine to bring to it, he was willing to listen to them. And that kept right. the discourse always moving forward. And that's a thing that we need. Yeah. Um, Don't more be a number of, three. Don't, don't be a number no, three. Don't be a number three. <laughs> don't be a number three, but oh boy, is that a hell of a hell of a performance. Oof, so good. And it's amazing that this movie, it was nominated for a Best Picture Oscar. None of the acting got nominated in this movie. Isn't that how insane? does that happen? That's that it just blows your mind that something like yeah. that can happen. And you've got, I mean, Henry Fonda's an Oscar winner, Martin Balsam won an Oscar, Ed Begley won an Oscar. And Warden and Cobb were both nominated, but none of that for this movie. Yeah. And they're yeah. all so good in it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it's, I, I still don't understand how it didn't I mean, win more. It's just, it's, it's just so good. But um, so did, are you generally a fan of like these kind of bottle episodes slash bottle movie type? Uh, I love a well done bottle bottle story bottle episode. Okay. Like, for me, one of the things I miss in current serial or um, series uh, shows is the bottle episodes. There, yeah. we've moved storytelling has moved to the serialized thing, and it was Lost wasn't the first one to do it, but Lost kind of changed television in a lot of yeah. ways and made yeah. things more serialized like x-files had that but x-files had a balance of the two yes when it started yep. in 93 you would have it was kind of a coin flip week to week are we going to have uh, a story that is part of the overarching thing or is it just going to be a self-contained monster of the week right and i miss that sometimes it's one one of my favorite shows of the last 15 years is psych yes and part of what I love about Psych is I can literally jump into any episode at any point in the seven season run of that, and I don't have to know anything from any other episode to enjoy it. They can be right. self-contained, but there's an overall story that if you do watch all of them, you start to you pick out little things. Yep. Firefly did that really well, too, for its short run. Strange was, New Worlds. The, the, Does that? The, that's one that oh, I haven't been able to see because I don't have Paramount great. Plus. It's great, and and they do that extremely well, uh, and they they hearkened back to the original Star Trek, uh, mm -hmm. where it really was story of the week type thing. Yeah, um, Strange New Worlds is very much that. They do have okay. the overarching story thing, but you don't need it for any given episode. Um, and, and I appreciate and that. I, yeah. And, and, and I don't want every series to be, I don't want everything to be cookie cutter. Like nope. stranger things is perfect. in what it's doing, which is each season is its own story. 
and you got to watch from beginning to end. I get that because it's basically one long movie. They're breaking up into pieces. Right. Um, the uh, a lot of the Marvel series do that. Loki season one yeah. is one long story broken up into you know the ten pieces or whatever. WandaVision the same way, but um, you know then give me something that is like more like a psych or Star Trek: The Next Generation, where it's just a collection of stories and centered around um american horror story did a good job with that i think with their different seasons where they would tell a story within a season but yeah. i can even take it further like depending on the, sh the show that you're making you can have kind of these individual pieces fringe was really good i felt like yes for yeah. a network series at doing that same thing that the x-files did i was just was, gonna say it felt story. very x-file-ish yeah yeah there was a story going on and it over time went more and more into the serialized nature but it had those bottle episodes right um and uh i just i do miss that some with some of our our shows nowadays nowadays yeah. um because we're we're so caught up in well it's got to be interconnected and all of that and i look i love good interconnected stories but not everything has to be right you, you can right. you can just tell uh, an, a bottle episode and move on with it that's i love that kind of stuff so that's like this why movie i do like oh, i'm sorry go ahead no, I was just saying that's what that's what made this work so well for me is everything going on around it in New York City and even inside the building that they were in was completely irrelevant to the story being told, which was this room and this group of people for this right. hour and a half. I love that. Well, and even when they when it started raining, they had to shut the windows and make it even more of a bottle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Close them in even more. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I, I thank you so much for for making me watch this again <laughs> well thank you for making me watch yeah. it because yeah uh you know we were joking pre-show with uh with phil in the chat that you know i was getting the shame bell rung at me for having not seen this movie and i i deserve that but i have now seen it and uh, i'll tell you what i'm gonna tell uh, i'm gonna make other people watch this i yeah. am i will spread the good word because it really it, it is such a good movie and it's important and i think that's Movies can be movies and television can be just pure entertainment. They can be popcorn, brainless fun. They can be important and they can be some, you know, art that is difficult for you to maybe take in, but is important to do. This is art that is got a purpose behind it and a meaning to it. That is also yes. very digestible and very um, approachable. Yes. You know, it doesn't have yeah, to it's, movies don't have to be monster to be important. Monster is a very important movie and I'm very glad that I saw that. I never want to watch it again because of yeah. the way it made me feel. This is one that yep. I can watch over and over and I can show other people and it's important societally as well. So, yes. Yeah, uh, there's a, there's a reason why it's 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 my number one favorite movie and uh and my number 2 is The Blues Brothers. So, it doesn't have to be societal, societally uh, important or socially important. It just right, <laughs> but 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 uh, yeah, it, it's it's I, I like I literally if if I find people that have not seen Twelve Angry Men, I recommend it highly to them. Well, and I'm, usually I'm they don't watch be it. Recommending it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I'm going to be doing the same thing because. And by the way, that's a good second favorite movie. It's Blues Brothers. Like, and I I am a big believer in balance. That is balancing out the world right there. You have yep. 12 Angry Men and Blues Brothers, kind of both ends of that scale, and it is perfectly balanced, as all things should be. 
but thank you so much for making me watch this and coming on and talking with me about it because uh, oh, thank you for having anytime me. i will definitely you'll be back for sure we're gonna okay. do this more i've uh, got another I love one. talking with you about stuff <laughs> good good it just happens um, to be another black and white movie i don't only watch black and white movies but but i've got i've got some that i really enjoy so I mean, one of the great things about this show for me has been going back and filling in some of the gaps in these older movies that I'd always hear about. And either I was young and dumb and just like, ah, I don't want to watch some old movies or would forget about. Um, and mm -hmm. so seeing The Apartment, 12 Angry Men, Sunset Boulevard, like these classic, classic movies, these Criterion I Collection, like... And I could remember amazing. if you had seen uh, the Maltese Falcon before we before we did the that first episode, I had not, but, and I hadn't either. And so the, for me, that was a great excuse to watch that, and I'm so mm -hmm. glad I did. Oh uh, yes, <laughs> so good. So yes. Well, you're you're two for two on on All episodes right. of this as being like just <laughs> killer movies. So we'll do another black and white one with uh, with you at some point. Um, but this was this was a ton of fun. Now next uh, next episode, I'm having a lot of fun because. Uh, I'm getting two guests. Ooh. Yeah. Amy Frost is coming back. Okay. And Phil Keating is coming back. Because same both time? of them. Same time. <laughs> I know. I don't know if the show can handle all that greatness, but they're coming on and they're going to talk to me because I haven't seen The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. And both of them had the same reaction when I told them that, which was to lose their mind. So I decided... Fine then, I'll watch it. But you're both coming on to talk to me about it. So that is the next episode. Is Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, and I'll have Phil Keating and Amy Frost on. And uh, Phil has threatened me with a song, so this could get interesting real quick. Yeah, be ready with the <laughs> mute button. <laughs> I will be for sure. I cannot wait. Um, uh, Wes Anderson is a filmmaker that I appreciate and I have not dove into enough. And Me too. so sort of like in the recent years, I started diving into David Lynch a lot more and really just having a great time with being like blown away by, by his work. Speaking of black, I'm looking films, forward did you to... watch a racer head? Yes, I did. And I'm still confused, <sighs> but oh, I, yeah, Ooh, that was my very <laughs> first David Lynch movie. And I was like, <laughs> What is happening? That is not a that is not a black and white movie. I would recommend to you. <laughs> it just it's just so out there. I, it yeah, it's it's something else. But I am just I am so excited to dive into some Wes Anderson and with a couple yeah. of a couple of my favorite people and a couple of people that I know are just going to bring so much of their passion to it. That no question. Uh, I'm very I'm very interested in how this conversation is going to go. So I can't wait for that. That's next episode. Um, that's going to be our, our normal recording time, which is Sunday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern time at uh, twitch.tv slash TV's Travis. Show comes out on Wednesdays, so you can always check that out. And look, sometimes schedules happen. And we got to move stuff around. That's why we're recording this on a Thursday night. Perfectly fine. I apologize. <laughs> nope, don't worry about it at all. Um, but if you enjoy this show, you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Easiest way to do it, because I made it the, the least SEO um, possible with the title is go to tvstravis.com. Uh, there you can find the feed for this show, for other shows that I do links to things like merchandise and Patreon, which I have for this show uh, at patreon.com slash WYHS. Um, you can also find uh, links to the discord and come hang out in my discord uh, and 
patrons get special access in the discord, including monthly movie catch up nights where I go through the back catalog and we watch some of the stuff that I've done for this show as a chance for people, if they maybe skip episodes that they don't see the movies for. So, uh, that's all, that's all fun too. Um, that's tvstravis.com. And then I'm on every social platform as tvstravis. The only one I'm not on yet is blue sky. Just waiting for an invite. <laughs> Honestly, I half the time, I don't remember which one I'm posting to anymore. There's so many, but I'm always tvstravis on all of them. Uh, now Kurt, where can people find you and what you've been working on? Yeah, I can be found pretty much everywhere at VO by Kurt. Um, and mostly, well, so we have a, we have the secret invasion going on on Disney plus right now. And so uh, I'm, I do a podcast called This Week in MCU, where we talk all things Marvel Cinematic Universe. And uh, I've been spending a lot of time on TikTok because I do a daily video series called Fat Guy that chronicles my weight loss journey. And so tonight I'll be recording day 308, I believe. All right. Uh, so, yeah. So... Um, so yeah, otherwise VO by Kurt everywhere except on Twitter because somehow I got banned. Not even sure why, but so it's real VO by Kurt on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Stuff happens on Twitter and we don't even know why or how you just, you just give up at this point. Um, all right. Well, that has been 12 angry men. Kurt, thank you so much uh, for being here this week. This is a lot of fun. I can't wait for the next. I'm, I'm not even going to ask what the movie is. We'll, That's all right. I'll wait, and I'll be surprised when I get a hold of you. We'll, we'll schedule you get you back on here for the next black and white uh, epic that we watch. Yeah, um, sounds good. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, tvstravis.com to find more about that. And you're going to want to you're going to want to catch next episode with Phil and Amy uh, because whew, it's going to be a lot of fun. Until then, the jury will now retire. I had to capture that. It was too good not to get. So remember to enjoy your movies. Let's have good discourse. Take some notes from 12 Angry Men. All right? This has been Wait You Haven't Seen. Baseball fan, aren't you? Huh? Yeah. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>